Nice oh, thanks. Thank you, brother. Appreciate that. <clears throat> well, my talk tonight has absolutely nothing to say about intention, so you can, we can talk about that later. Uh, that's a good shout-out for Mercer University Press, by the way. I was their first student employee when the press started. I needed a work-study job, and that was the one I had. And it's the only student employee. Uh, I actually prepared the index of two of their books and then shrink-wrapped those books and hauled them up to the sixth floor of the law school. So, you know, you get to do a little bit of everything in those kinds of jobs. So... Uh, it's good to see you out here tonight, and uh, I, I commend you on this practice uh, in your sister presbytery, and I have seen some familiar faces because uh, I moved to New York into the Northeast Presbytery and uh, was in, a member of the Northeast Presbytery before three, for three years before Metro New York formed out of that. Uh, we started Metro New York Presbytery with the idea of having an annual seminar day and having every Presbytery meeting begin with some sort of topic and discussion or lecture. I would say now it's probably been five years since we've had a lecture to begin a Presbytery meeting, and we've gotten to the seminars about once every two or three years. So you're doing a lot better than us. Let me, let me just tell you that. Um, let me pray for us. Uh, again, I know we've had a prayer, and then we'll, uh, we'll dig in to some talking about the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us um, these gifts that we refer to as the sacraments of the gospel, the gifts of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Father, tonight as we reflect a bit on our beliefs and practices about the Lord's Supper, we pray that you would guide us by your spirit and we pray that we might come not only to a deeper appreciation of these gifts, but a deeper appreciation of the gospel of which they are signs and seals. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. When, um, when we started, uh, just a little background, I'm, I'm the senior pastor at Trinity Presbyterian Church down in Westchester. We currently meet in Rye and are in the process of starting a, uh, another site, hopefully approving a pastor for that very soon. Uh, over on the Hudson River, Riverside, uh, that group has a Bible study now in Hastings. Uh, but when we started in 1994, uh, we were one of the first two daughter churches of Redeemer in Manhattan. We were both starting at the same time. The other one, another good friend of John's, my best friend since college days at Mercer, a guy named Scott Sherman, was planting a church in Greenwich Village called the Village Church. Those of you who remember the Northeast Presbytery will remember some of this. And Scott and I decided that we were going to convince our core groups, if at all possible, to start weekly communion. When we started having services, we were going to start with weekly communion. Redeemer was then and now monthly communion, although this is being recorded. I'll say it anyway. I, Tim, ha Tim Keller has said uh, to some of us that he kind of wishes he had started Redeemer with weekly communion, but if he were to do it now, his communion volunteers would rise up and kill him. And I think that's probably true. So um, now it has become, and especially in PCA church planning circles, weekly communion has become very, very common. Now, if you want to talk about weekly communion more, um, feel free. We can ask questions about that in the Q&A. I do not think, I'm going to remove the little bug there. Um, I don't think that weekly communion is biblically mandated. So I hope if you don't celebrate the Eucharist uh, every Lord's Day, you won't hear me 
uh, condemning you or saying that you're somehow wrong. But I do think it is a practice that has good biblical, theological, historical, and practical reasons. And uh, that's why we do it. But doing communion every Sunday, celebrating the Eucharist every Lord's Day, has forced us to think about it and to reflect on it. And that's what I want us to focus on today. I want us to talk about the riches of the Reformed tradition of Eucharistic theology and practice. And uh, to see how there are spiritual benefits for Christian formation, for spiritual growth, arising out of the beliefs and the practices of the Reformed tradition when it comes to the sacrament of Holy Communion. Okay, And I'm going to do a shameless plug here for a book by a friend. But if you want to talk about that link between beliefs and practices, I think the best book out there is a book called Desiring the Kingdom. It's volume one in what's called the Cultural Liturgy Series, and it's by Jamie Smith, who teaches philosophy at Calvin College, James K.A. Smith. And uh, volume two in that series comes out in early 2013. Now, for our outline tonight, though, I'm using a quote from another Presbyterian uh, pastor and spiritual theologian, and that's Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson, in his book, Reversed Thunder, which is his book on the book of Revelation, he says of the Lord's Supper the following. He says, it, quote, is the primary way that Christians remember, receive, and share the meaning of our salvation. Let me repeat that. It is the primary way that Christians remember, receive, and share the meaning of our salvation. So that'll be our outline, those three words. So first, what does it mean that in the Eucharist, in the Lord's Supper, we remember the meaning of our salvation? We remember our salvation in Christ. Um, This one is an atypical communion table. I suspect in Presbyterian circles, so is ours. We worship in a Catholic girls' school, so our, our holy table is foldable and movable. But how many of you are in churches where the communion table says, do this in remembrance of me, or maybe this do in remembrance of me, depending on the day, right? Right. I grew up in churches like that. Most of the churches I've been a part of have done that. So obviously the idea of remembering, of remembrance, is a key idea in our understanding of the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, we are called to to remember what God has done, in the words of the Nicene Creed, for us and for our salvation. And we are called to remember that, particularly by focusing on the incarnation, life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we all know that we have a tendency to forget, right? Um, How many people here are married? Okay. Okay. On our wedding day 28 years ago, uh, if you had told me that there was ever a way I could take my wife Anne for granted, I I would have just been mortified. 28 years later, you can ask me, better me than Anne, uh, if she's ever felt like I was taking her for granted. (laughs) But of course, that's what happens, right? We, We get so caught up, part of life in the fallen world and us as fallen people is that we often lose sight of what is truly important. We fail to remember. And when we fail to remember the good things that God has given us, then we become fundamentally ungrateful. 
Wendell Berry is my favorite living poet. He's another native Southerner from Kentucky. This is his poem, The Wild Rose, that he wrote for his wife. Sometimes hidden from me in daily custom and in trust, so that I live by you unaware as by the beating of my heart, suddenly you flare in my sight, a wild rose blooming at the edge of thicket, grace and light where yesterday was only shade, and once more I am blessed, choosing again what I chose before. Just as in our marriages we need things to remind us of how important this is, so we need to remember what is important in our spiritual lives. Uh, There's a great prayer in the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, and I should say now I'm going to quote a number of Anglican sources. Uh, My wife joked recently with someone at church who said, your husband seems to be a bit of a closet Anglican. And she said, oh, he's been out of that closet for years. Uh, But there is a great prayer in the Anglican prayer book, uh, a great prayer of thanksgiving, where we pray to the Lord and, you know, we give thanks for all the blessings of this life. That's the first thing. And just think about all the blessings of this life. We just gave thanks for very good food. You can probably tell I'm someone who likes to give thanks for food. And like most native Southerners, I'm trying to be a little slightly less appreciative maybe, or at least less indulgent in some of my favorites like gravy and biscuits and fried chicken and things like that. Uh, But there's shelter, there's clothing, there's beautiful autumn weather. Uh, There are the things that give us joy in life that maybe we're not thankful enough for. Uh, For me, uh, that would be a lot of music. I find myself often failing to thank the Lord for the musicians that I love and appreciate the most. And uh, I'm a bluegrass fan, so I have to remember every now and then, thank the Lord for Bill Monroe and for Del McCurry. And throw in a little Thomas Tallis and William Byrd and Tom Petty. (laughs) So, you know, are we thankful for these things? Thankful for the blessings of this life. But the prayer goes on to say, but above all, We are thankful. We render you humble and hearty thanks, the prayer says, for the immeasurable love shown in the redemption of the world through our Lord Jesus Christ for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. Now, you see, that's the thing. We have a tendency to forget what God has done for us in the saving work of Jesus Christ. We have a tendency to forget that in the words of songwriter Michael Card, Jesus loves us so much he would rather die than live without us. And so one of the key reasons why our Lord gave us this meal that we will celebrate tonight is that he knows our weakness. And he knows that we need to come together and to remember what he has done and to give thanks. So that's why one of the names given to the Eucharist, the one I'm using a lot here, is that word. It's the Eucharist. Uh, That's not a common word, actually, in uh, most evangelical circles. It is a very common word in academic circles and ecumenical circles, but it is a very good word. It's very ancient. It's kind of like the word Trinity. It's not in the New Testament, but you find it very, very quickly thereafter in the writings of the early church. And, of course, the word Eucharist just means thanksgiving. 
because as uh, the great English reformers Thomas Cranmer called it, the Eucharist is the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. In a little while, it's actually part of the worship service, we will use the historic great thanksgiving, which begins with what's called the sursum corda, where the minister says, lift up your hearts. And the people respond, we lift them up to the Lord. The minister, it is right, uh, let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And the people, it is right to give him thanks and praise. And then that prayer, which is called the great thanksgiving in liturgical scholarship, begins, uh, it is right and a good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And it goes on from there. So it is truly a good and joyful thing, and it is an immeasurable blessing when we are able to gather at the Lord's table and remember God's love for us and what he has done for our salvation. So first, we remember our salvation. But secondly, in the Eucharist, we receive the meaning of our salvation. We receive our salvation in Christ. Now, this gets into more controversy and into some heavier theology. So we're going to spend a little more time on this point. While saying in the Eucharist we receive our salvation causes maybe the evangelical side of us to uh, get a little prickly, what I want to argue is as those who are committed to the Reformed tradition, and particularly as those who see ourselves as uh, followers of Calvin and the Westminster divines, we really shouldn't be too prickly about this at all. In an article several years ago in the journal Pro Ecclesia, um, Alvin Kimmel, who was an um, Anglican pastor and theologian at the time, he's now a Roman Catholic, but anyway, he uh, wrote this very impassioned article arguing that here's a real test question to determine whether or not someone's theology of the Eucharist is, as he put it, Catholic or sectarian. That's Catholic with small c. As in, are, is your doctrine in keeping with that has, which has been believed by the church for two millennia? Or is it a split off from the mainstream of the Christian movement? And what he said, is, the question is this. If you are receiving or serving communion and the bread is in front of you, can you say to people, this is the body of Christ? In our church, as the elements are distributed uh, the ushers say, and the pastors and whoever's helping out say, as people receive communion, people come forward in our church to receive communion. As communion is given, as the bread is given, the person, the server says, the body of Christ, the bread of heaven. And as the cup is received, they say, the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation. Now, is that an empty metaphor? Are we speaking poetically? Okay. Alvin Kimmel argues that if you are, you're sectarian. He goes, the line between a Catholic understanding and a sectarian understanding is whether or not you can say, hoc est corpus meum, this is my body, or if you can only say, hoc significat corpus meum, this signifies or represents my body. If it merely signifies, you're outside the Catholic tradition. That's his argument. Now, in his article, he went on to explain how we in the Reformed tradition are outside. And I think he's wrong. Uh, I, I, I know Kimmel would disagree with me, but I believe that as followers of Calvin, and particularly in light of the teaching of the Westminster Standards, we don't mean those as empty metaphors. So let me dig into this a little bit. 
Brian Garish at the University of Chicago, maybe I think he's retired now, that book's pretty old. Anyway, Brian Garish at the University of Chicago says that there are three main streams of Eucharistic theology, okay, within the Reformed camp. There are three, okay? And he avoids the common names mostly. He doesn't talk about uh, virtualism or any of those kinds of terms that you may have heard. He gives them three sort of unique names. The first one is this, what he calls symbolic memorialism. And uh, that's the idea. We do still use the word memorialism. It's the one that says that the bread and wine are symbols. And as symbols of the body and blood of Christ, the purpose of these symbols is to be mnemonic devices. They remind us of what happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus Jesus gave his body and blood on the cross and uh, was then raised from the dead. And, of course, that is the view that is associated with Ulrich Zwingli. Now, I know that there are some controversies about that. A lot of scholars will tell you that Zwingli was not nearly as much of a Zwinglian as uh, some modern-day Zwinglians are. Uh, but uh, that's where that idea comes from. And you may, have, uh, you may know that in some of his tracts and treatises, Calvin, without mentioning Zwingli by name, uh, has some very harsh things to say about that view. I think it's also interesting for us to realize that while in 19th and 20th century free church models, like a lot of Baptists, and I grew up Southern Baptist, uh, that memorialistic view, it's just a symbol, has become fairly widespread I think we need to note that, well, first of all, not all Baptists hold that. Uh, there are, I have uh, one uh, uh, acquaintance who is a Southern Baptist theologian and is a lot closer to Calvin than he is to Zwingli. Uh, but also, it's important to note that Zwingli didn't win the day in any of the historic Reformed confessions. None of the Reformed confessions reflect a Zwinglian understanding of the Eucharist. So that's the first one, symbolic memorialism. The second one says... Okay, well, that's true. We don't disagree with that about remembering, but it's more than that. And it's called symbolic parallelism. And this is the idea that simply says, and often sort of in a mysterious way, that just as bread and wine nourish our bodies, so in a parallel to that, the body and blood of Christ nourish our souls. Uh, That may sound familiar if any of you grew up in Dutch Reformed traditions. That's pretty much how the Heidelberg Catechism explains the the Eucharist, how it talks about the Lord's Supper. And so it was, this is the view particularly of uh, Ursinus, who is the principal writer of the Heidelberg, of uh, Bullinger. And on the Anglican side, Thomas Cranmer was largely in this camp as well. The third view, though, Brian Garish says this was Calvin's view. And again, it's not a repudiation of the first two. It's simply saying they don't quite go far enough. For this view that Garish calls symbolic instrumentalism, it's the view that says, yes, the bread and wine are symbols. One thing we can all agree on, okay? Where no no one in the Reformed tradition advocates transubstantiation. But these are symbols that serve in God's plan as instruments through which we receive what is symbolized. So that as we receive the bread and wine, that bread and wine becomes the instrument by which we receive the body and blood of Christ. We, meaning the faithful. So 
So you see, in the symbolic instrumentalist view, if someone says, well, isn't the Lord's Supper just a symbol? We go, well, it's a symbol. (laughs) But it's not just a symbol at all. Let me give you some quotes here. This is Calvin, Institutes 41719, if anybody wants to know. Calvin says, I freely accept whatever can be made to express the true and substantial, those are important words, true and substantial partaking of the body and blood of the Lord, which is shown to believers under the sacred symbols of the supper. Calvin, in one of his treatises, by the way, also argues that we should see the body and blood of Christ as present in the bread and wine in the same way and to the same extent that we think of the Holy Spirit as being present in the dove that descended upon Jesus at his baptism. Christ is, the body and blood of Christ are as present in the bread and wine of the Eucharist as the Holy Spirit was present in the dove that descended upon Christ. I would argue that that's exactly the view we find in the Westminster Standards. Shorter Catechism, question and answer 92, says that in the sacraments, let me quote this, many of you know this by heart, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. Now, two important things that we often leave out. It's not simply that the benefits of the new covenant are given to us in the sacraments. It's that Christ, Christ himself, and the benefits of the new covenant are given to us. If we don't believe that Christ is himself communicated to us in the sacraments, frankly, we're out of accord with the Westminster Standards. And notice that they're not just represented and sealed, but applied to believers. So in other words, for those of us who want to follow Calvin, we can say, yes, we believe in the real presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. It's not just hoc significat. It is that, but it's not merely that. It's hoc est corpus meum. We can say, this is my body. I would argue this is consistent with the teaching of the New Testament. Uh, two examples. First of all, 1 Corinthians. We hear that read frequently at communion services, right? In 1 Corinthians, Paul is incredibly distressed by the divisions that are afflicting the Corinthian church. Those divisions are mostly socioeconomic on the one hand, and for lack of a better word, they're denominational. Uh, I had a friend ask me once, uh, where, where is the biblical basis for the fact that the church is split into denominations? And I, was, I gave him my standard snarky answer. It's in 1 Corinthians. You know, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, uh, where St. Paul says that's worldly and carnal. That's the biblical basis for denominationalism. And so since the church was divided, and particularly in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, he's focusing on the socioeconomic divisions of the church. And by the way, I believe that when St. Paul says that we are to discern the body, he's primarily saying that we need to recognize the unity of the church. But that's a debated New Testament point. But he says that these divisions are destroying what, what the gospel is about. So he says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. I think the emphasis there needs to be on Lord. It's not the Lord's Supper 
you're eating. It's your own. Uh, the rich eating, the poor being left behind. And then, of course, as you know, he gives some pretty serious warnings. This is why many of you are weak and sick, and a number have fallen asleep. And that's a euphemism. <laughs> now, here's the thing. If it's just a symbol, why are people dying from not discerning the unity of the church? Well, the answer, of course, is that it's not just a symbol. In the previous chapter, and reading here, this is the NIV translation, although I think the key word here is exactly the same in the ESV. If anybody's got ESV and you want to check this, uh, it's um, 10, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 16. St. Paul says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Participation is not too strong a translation. The Greek word is koinonia, of course. Uh, the NRSV translates it as sharing. The King James translates it as communion. We frequently translate that word as fellowship elsewhere. In uh, Peterson's translation, a somewhat paraphrastic translation, the message, he puts it this way. When we drink the cup of blessing, aren't we taking into ourselves the blood, the very life of Christ? And isn't it the same with the loaf of bread we break and eat? Don't we take into ourselves the body, the very life of Christ? Now, um, second passage of Scripture is John chapter 6. And I'm going to just uh, be blunt. I, I have a strong opinion on this. Sometimes people will say, but John 6 is not about the Eucharist. Well, in the one sense, that's just obviously true. That's not, Jesus is not going, let me tell you about this meal I'm going to institute. On the other hand, if we're right in assuming, as most scholars do, that John was the last of the four Gospels to be composed and circulated, it means that the church had been gathering, I think uh, every Sunday, and receiving the Lord's Supper and had been doing so for a full generation. So obviously the original hearers of John's gospel would have heard this as a, when, you know, about Jesus uh, being the bread of life. They would obviously have heard that with Eucharistic overtones. Now you know the, the story in John chapter 6, right? Jesus' questioners are saying, why don't you give us a sign? They said, you know, Moses sent manna, you know, gave us manna in the desert. And Jesus goes, well, it wasn't Moses who sent manna. It was, you know, my Father in heaven who sent the manna. Uh, but when they ask, then they say, you know, well, send us this bread from heaven. And Jesus responds by saying, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the bread of life. And he goes on, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Well, the hearers respond with incredulity. They're just kind of beside themselves at Jesus saying this. You know, this is another one of those classic examples where Jesus takes everything they believe and essentially says, it's all about me. <laughs> but instead of backing off, I mean, you can imagine, right? Some of, some of you may be even thinking, I ought to be backing off a little bit. When is he going to go? Okay, okay, let me, let, me, let me ease up on this. When Jesus' hearers respond this way, rather than kind of backing off and going, oh, oh, oh no, don't, read, don't overread what I said, Jesus actually turns up the heat. And he says, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And it's not reflected in most English translations, but there's a change in the Greek verb there. 
where Jesus starts off with the ordinary Greek verb phago to mean to eat, okay? But this time he changes it to the Greek, uh, to the Greek verb trogo, which means to gnaw or to chew. A really literal translation is he's going, unless you gnaw or chew the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He goes on to say, you know, um, this is the bread that came down from heaven. Your fathers, your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now, that's another reason then why the Lord gave us this meal. Because we need to receive the life of Jesus. We need to deepen our union with Christ, which I would argue is at the heart and center of Reformed soteriology. And for that to happen, well, one of the means that God has given us for this is this meal, this sacrament. The short version of that is when people at Trinity Church say, why do you have communion every Sunday? I say, because we need all the Jesus we can get. That's true. So that gives us uh, the other common name, particularly common in Anglican circles, um, for this meal, which is it's Holy Communion. Because this meal is our communion, it's our sharing, it's our participation in the life-giving body and blood of Christ. Now let me mention two caveats here, okay? Uh, first of all, Reformed people have always insisted that you cannot receive Christ apart from faith. And I was going to take more time on that, but I'm running out of time, so I won't. But the, at the heart of the differences between Reformed and Lutheran understandings of the Lord's Supper in the 16th century was not about the real presence, both affirming that Christ is really, truly offered in the Eucharist. The real question is, do the unfaithful receive the body and blood of Christ? And Lutheran said, absolutely and the Reformed said, it is offered to them, but without faith you cannot receive Christ. Again, I think Calvin was right. Um, the other thing to remember is, though, that this is a mystery. I, I do think that sometimes we get ourselves in trouble um, because we are really trying to dig maybe deeper than we really can into a rationalistic understanding. You know, let, let's face it, the Reformed tradition has often sort of veered between a, a deep and humble appreciation of mystery, but also having a bit of a rationalistic element of always trying to dot every I and cross every T. Calvin said of the Lord's Supper that it is, quote, a secret too lofty for either my mind to comprehend or my words to declare and to speak more plainly. I rather experience it than understand it. That was Calvin. Next time somebody tells you, I don't like reading Calvin because he's so cold and rationalistic, pull out that quote. It's from the Institutes. Um, as a... Um, uh, church planter who worked with Tim Keller, it's, we are required to quote C.S. Lewis as often as possible. So um, Lewis's uh, line on this in um, Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer, is he goes, the command after all was take, eat, not take, understand. And that could be a helpful thing. And I'll throw this out as an aside, but I think the greatest line of Eucharistic theology that C.S. Lewis ever wrote, and whether or not he intended it or not, I have no idea, uh, comes from uh, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which is my favorite of the Chronicles of Narnia. 
And by the way, the current Archbishop of Canterbury has a new book out on the Chronicles of Narnia that I highly recommend. But um, in Voyage of the Dawn Treader, you know Eustace, uh, if you know Narnia, Eustace is the, you know, the kind of toady kid whose parents were hyper-progressive and made him eat all vegetarian meals and called them by their first names. And Eustace is, you know, a bit of a brat and a know-it-all. And so Eustace says, in our world, a star is a huge ball of flaming gas. And Aslan responds, even in your world, my son, that is not what a star is, but only what it is made of. Now, I think this mystery should kind of make our hearts uh, leap as well as make our heads spin, okay? Uh, Because it's that when we come to the Lord's table, we only catch a glimpse of what God's doing in our lives. He's blessing us. He's changing us from the inside out in ways that are ultimately beyond our comprehension. And, And we shouldn't be surprised by this, that the Lord would use something so ordinary. I mean, after all, He uses... Pretty ordinary, okay, we don't bind a lot of our books in leather anymore, but he uses a pretty ordinary paper and ink, and ordinary uh, syntax and grammar and vocabulary to communicate to us what we believe is the written Word of God. In our church, after Scripture readings, the reader will often say, the Word of the Lord, and people respond, thanks be to God. We don't mean that as a nice little piece of pious poetry. We mean it. This book is God's Word written. In the same way when we say, the body of Christ, the bread of heaven, that's not pious poetry either. We believe that God uses something as every day as a meal to bless us. So, it's a good and joyful thing for us to gather at the Lord's table and receive the love of God for our salvation. Okay, I told you that was the long one, so let's go to the third one, which is quicker. In the Eucharist, we remember, we receive, and we share the meaning of our salvation in Christ. This is the one that it's easy for Americans to miss because, face it, we're pretty individualistic. Uh, We sometimes uh, forget that not only is it a true statement to say that God saves us as individuals, and that is true and important and not to be forgotten, but that He's not just redeeming individuals but a community. He is preparing a people for Himself, a people of His own possession. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, St. Paul says. I think this shouldn't surprise us because uh, God created us as social beings and he redeems us as social beings. Just as when we gather at a table, that's where we learn to communicate, we learn table manners, we learn how to respect other people, we learn how not to hog the conversation, and hopefully we learn how to be hospitable by inviting our neighbors and our friends to come and have dinner with us. So in the Eucharist, it's a great reminder that we live in community. I don't know about you, but we like the phrase church family in our congregation. Uh, I didn't start it. A lot of people did, and it's the common line, welcome to the Trinity Church family. Well, we share a family meal every Lord's Day. Uh, it's, it's where we remember that we live together. Eugene Peterson says, no Christian is an only child, and we need to remember that. And again, it shouldn't surprise us because after all, we serve a God who is a communion of love. Three persons dwelling together in perfect unity. Do you see? Um, if you think about it, just you know, basic Trinitarian theology, how do we identify the three persons of the Godhead? Their, only, their identity comes 
Each person's identity comes from his relationships with the other two members of the Trinity. They are identified relationally. I think that's true of us as people made in the image of the triune God. We are meant to live together. I like to say in our church, um, there are no Christians at large. And what that means is if you're not in a right relationship with the people of God, you're really not in a right relationship with God. If you're not in a right relationship with the body of Christ, you're not really in a right relationship with Christ. And if you're not in a right relationship with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, you're not in a right relationship with the Holy Spirit. Uh, in other words, we need to uh, quit thinking of our spirituality in terms of the old country song, Me and Jesus Got Our Own Thing Going. You know that song? I think I have it on my iPhone. Um, and actually maybe go to the maybe hokier but better theology song, They'll Know We Are Christians By Our Love. I'm going to, I know I'm a little over, I'm going to give you one illustration of where this annoys me. We have people in our, you know, very, you know, I'm, it's no different up here, but, you know, it's a very commuter-oriented culture and people come and they go. If we get a family at Trinity Church for four or five years, we're like, yes, that's great. Uh, sometimes I feel like we're running a college ministry because, you know, four or five years are going to be gone. Um, we pastors sit around and fantasize about how, what, how big would this church be if everybody just stayed? But anyway, um, but here's my pet peeve, and it's gotten better because I've shared it enough, but... People will call me after they've been away for a year and say, you know, we're really having a hard time finding a church here. You know why that bothers me? I will guarantee you that before they moved, they thoroughly investigated the housing market, the real estate issues. They know every detail about crime. They know all the details about all the schools in their neighborhood. Spent hundreds of hours researching all of that before they moved. And then just figured, oh, when we get there, we'll find a church. You see, that reflects this individualistic uh, poison in American Christianity. Um, that's another reason the Lord gave us this meal. We live in community. And that's one reason we call it the Lord's Supper. I'll give you my other pet peeve, and I'm done. Uh, I love it when we have children who are about to make a public profession and be admitted to the table. People will say, uh, I'll have parents go, well, I'm not sure little Bobby really understands communion yet. To which I always like to say, do you understand it? I don't. Calvin didn't. That's pretty good for me. But here's the other thing. There's a sense in which a lot of times the kids get it. You have little kids who go, you know what, you know what communion is? We have dinner with Jesus and with each other. That's pretty good theology, don't you think? So... The Lord's Supper calls us to practice true fellowship. It calls us to go out into mission, to be inviting others in. It's a good and joyful thing to share this with one another. Uh, Robert Bruce, the great Scottish reformer, put it this way. Um, this was, uh, you know, Scottish Presbyterian died in 1631. He said, it is certainly true that we get no new thing in the sacrament. We get no other thing in the sacrament than we get in the Word. For what more would you ask than to really receive the Son of God Himself? Your heart can neither desire nor imagine a greater gift than the Son of God, who is King of heaven and earth. Why then is the sacrament appointed? Not that you may get any new thing, but you may get the same thing better than you had it in the Word. He's often been paraphrased. Sinclair Ferguson used to do this a lot at seminary. 
we don't get a better Christ in the Lord's Supper. But sometimes we do get Christ better. And that's why we need to do this. It is a good and joyful thing and an immeasurable blessing together at the Lord's table and to remember, receive, and share the saving love of God in Jesus Christ. We need all the Jesus we can get. Thank you.